0: It's kind of like a backup argument, like it's like, even if it isn't bad, it leads to bad.
1: So we're going to consolidate everything and make one
0: giant drug enforcement agency. That bothers me. It it takes the human element out out of sentencing. And this is where
1: marijuana gets classified as a Schedule 1 drug. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Social Discord. And we're jumping ahead this time. This is episode 420 marijuana and the gateway to legalization <laughs> i'm dalen turk i'm curtis medina you know it cracked me up because before this episode started curtis is like can we please put 420 in the title and i'm like and realistically this is episode 33 but i'm just like what if we just do episode 420 and he was like screw it let's do it
0: <laughs> like this- who, who's going to care like who is who is really counting i mean i there's somebody out there that's going to be upset by this but I think I think the coolness outweighs the um <laughs> that that small demographic of people who who are just gonna kind of uh, sticklers about the episode count.
1: If you're upset by this, uh I'm gonna uh refer you to uh uh a topic of our last episode, Joe Rogan, who would probably tell you to uh eat some elk meat, smoke a joint, and chill out. Um that, that's probably what he'd tell you to do. <laughs> But, as the title says, and as we've alluded to thus far, we're talking about marijuana today. We're talking about cannabis. Um, so, yeah, we're going to be diving into kind of the, I guess, criminalization, legalization of marijuana, and, I guess, how we got to where we are today. Uh, Curtis?
0: about marijuana just makes it so fun, though. Like, I mean, like, <laughs> like, there's just something about it in our culture that, like, even though it's so serious... We, like, like, meaning, like, people are getting arrested for it today in our present world and getting their lives ruined. But at the same time, like, even though it's against the law and we're supposed to take it seriously, it's so hard to take this plant seriously, isn't it? I,
1: like, I don't personally, like, I don't smoke weed myself, but I could not care less if you smoke weed. Like, I, like, why does it matter? It's, to me, it's no different than if you were drinking some beer like it just who cares i mean i
0: think i think the counterculture won at this point like i mean i heard a republican say once that it was a losing issue like he was basically like if you want to you know be against it it's up to you but you're gonna lose. Like, I mean, it's it's you're not gonna get a single extra vote for it. Kind of thing. Like, you can just be that way. But it's a losing issue if you're against it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we saw, like you said, in in the the '60s, which you know we'll we'll dive into later. But it was such a demonstrative force of cultural revolution that I just and like it took a while to get to where we are now. But I just really don't think there was any turning back. You know, no. like the momentum was just it was just too strong and they were riding high. Nicely um, they- <laughs> <Right. Mostly> put. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> okay. I would appreciate that. <laughs> oh, my God. Why are they not guest hosting this episode right now? Like, why did we not use our wonderful networking capabilities and bring on Chi and Chong? It's a shame.
0: I don't, we, I don't know if we could have got them. I mean, they're in such high demand. <laughs> <That's bad. laughs> I mean, well, so much like there's so much speaking to do on marijuana. I mean, it's like like they're they're doing bigger and better things. To be quite frank, uh, probably <laughs> something that we, we probably couldn't afford them. Pro, pro, most likely not.
1: Um, I do live in Texas, though, so maybe I could have gotten Willie Nelson.
0: Oh, That's now, possible. see, now, Willie Nelson is cool as F, so, I mean... Before we get he, going, uh, I
1: do have a, a, a short have. little story. So, um, a buddy yeah. of mine, Bo Willis, he works for this uh, company called Austin Oyster Co., and they, uh, they're they like a a catering, food catering company where they hand-shuck oysters at parties and whatnot. And so, a couple of well, weeks ago, he was at Willie Nelson's ranch for, like, five days just shucking oysters for all these people, and they had like all these concerts and vendors, all this like crazy stuff. And one night, he sends me a Snapchat, and I open it's a video, and it's it's like a it's like a rectangle tin can, like you know the like Altoid cans. Mm-hmm. It's like that type of tin can, and on the front of it, it's got like a portrait of Willie Nelson that's all like psychedelic looking and whatnot. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. And then he opens it. And inside, it's, like, this black velvet lining with two of the most perfectly rolled joints I've ever... It was, was like, as if they were in, like, an adult cartoon. They were so perfectly rolled. It was was the most insane thing. He's like, dude, I got these from Willie Nelson. (laughs) And he was so excited. Like... That that guy's cool. That guy's so cool. Willie's Willie's the absolute best. He's wonderful. (laughs) He's just... He is the gem of a generation. We cannot lose him. Um, so, absolutely, and,
0: you know, and like, I, w- I want to say something too. Like, so, you know, you know, a lot of these issues on this show, we really try to sort of show both sides of it. We're gonna do it a little bit today, but to be quite honest, I don't think either of us really had the heart to like try to get that devil's advocate like too much. We're pretty much just gonna be talking about how we got to where we're at now and i'm sorry the villains are going to be the people who are you know putting people in jail because of a plant
1: yeah and quite honestly we tried so hard during the cancel culture episodes that i really need a relaxed fit to just be like this is what happened like it's it's (laughs) like yep this is it and so today, like, we will be going over just a lot of just straight up history and timeline yep. stuff. Uh, but history is fun. So strap on in. Um, Absolutely. So before we get going into that, though, I want to talk about, like, what exactly is marijuana. Um, so, you know, marijuana. We, we've heard all the different names. There's weed, pot, grass, bud, ganja, hash, Mary Jane, cannabis sativa, cannabis indica, and... Marijuana. Curtis, you're like keeling over laughing right now. <laughs> and I will I will have you know I did not rehearse that. I, <laughs> I did that off the cuff. That was great. That so was pretty good. It was pretty good. I was expecting to rhyme for a second. They were going to like oh. break out into like a,
0: like a rap or something. I don't know.
1: <laughs> someone, someone laid down a fresh beat on that first line. So – Though pop culture imagery of marijuana would have people believe it's the leaves that are smoking, it's actually the flower or bud. Uh, so A buds, buds. Um, yep. So buds only grow on female pot plants, which I did not know there were gendered. Like the cannabis was like gendered. I had no idea. Which I, I, I guess it makes sense. Like I know bell peppers have genders. Um, but yeah. So I learned that. Um, so female mm-hmm. plants consist of long, skinny main stems with various nodes filled with the infamous leaves spread along the stem. Uh, they grow upwards to 16
0: feet tall. 16 feet. That is so tall. And they grow wild. Remember? like Remember we, yeah. we learned that in the uh, episode on uh, policing? Like they just
1: – it's just a plant. Like the, I, Yeah. That's the crazy thing about marijuana that I think people – Like who are afraid of it, lose the concept of is like you think drugs, you think of all these manufactured drugs, you think of, you know, LSD, you think of prescription drugs, you think of cocaine that is a natural thing drawn through this manufactured process. But weed is literally just a plant. That's all it is. So. Buds grow at what's called the colla, um, also known as the bud site along the stem. Uh, the main kala is located at the top of the plant, um, and kind of this is a general term for all plants. Uh, the top of the plant is called the terminal bud, where the newest growth is. So when you see, say you plant a little tree, and the top of it, you see the very tip of it is green, that's the terminal bud. Um, These buds have smaller leaves intertwined with them, and they are covered in small hairs as well as white crystals, which leads us to trichomes. Uh, Trichomes are actually – are the part of marijuana plant that contains the main ingredients like tetrahydrocannabinol. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Tetrahydrocannabinol, THC. Otherwise known
0: as THC. THC
1: and other cannabinoids. So cannabinoids, uh, there are over 480 chemical compounds found in the plant, but only 66 are classified as cannabinoids. Uh, THC is the main psychotropic compound found in marijuana. Um, And the other one is cannabidiol, cannabidiol, CBD, otherwise known as. um, And it's actually the most abundant cannabinoid and makes up 40% of the resin from the plant. Um, I promise for the rest of the episode, we're just gonna say like marijuana or cannabis. <laughs> These, These other are ones in the
0: scientific terms. <laughs> yes. Um. And so it's, it's it's funny to me that CBD has been so widely accepted. Um. You know, pretty easily, I'd say because, and I think it's mostly to do with it. It doesn't have the um, psychedelic part of it, right? Like yeah. it's that supposed to, at least.
1: No. So, can cannab- uh, uh, CBD doesn't have the psycho? It has. Oh, goodness. It's like 0.03%, something like that. It really, it doesn't have any psychotropic properties at all relative to other compounds like THC, which is the main psychotropic compound um, in the plant. Um, But it, and I know there's a lot of argument in the medical community and CBD communities that CBD has therapeutic properties. You know, you'll see all these CBD po- uh, shops popping up, and you know CBD oil, CBD drops, CBD lotion, CBD everything, mm-hmm. and it's just this Eastern medicine type ideology that it provides therapeutic relief.
0: Um, I mean, it's supposed to relieve pain. I mean, it, that's no. that I've heard people. I mean, that, that they have you know, chronic pain disorders, um, they use it and it really does help them.
1: Yeah. I mean, I've, I've heard the same thing. Like I, I know I've used like a CBD oil and I didn't necessarily have an effect that I noticed, but I do know people that swear by it. And I'm like, even it, even if it is like a placebo, if it makes you feel better, like great, like good for you
0: what I've heard is there's there's different types of CBD oils and like there's mm-hmm. like a like a more pure type and there's a less pure type or something like that. Um, so so I, I like I've heard that too. Like where you know some people will swear by certain uh, I don't know what you call it strains or something. Yeah. Um. But and uh, but and other people try it and they've said yeah I just wasted you know eighty bucks on this and <laughs> you know it's not as good as an Advil or something. So <laughs> right. so I definitely I've heard like a lot of different. Stories And I think it's because it's kind of an unregulated industry pretty yes. much Um, in terms of like, is it, does it scientifically actually help you or not? Well, and that's like, um, if, if you
1: ever go into a, a CBD shop or go into uh, uh, a marijuana shop, like the knowledge that these people have about marijuana and about the compounds in it and just about the plant is just, it's insane like it's a science you know it's no different than any other type of uh oh goodness what's the word for someone who studies plants um botanist botanist. botany yes botany um i guess if you ask a botanist they would also know probably about (laughs) weed as well um yeah but like there's just so much behind all this stuff that so many people don't understand, um, and I think when people hear CBD, they're like, "Oh, marijuana, rah!" But it's like, well, it, it's not the same as what you're thinking of, which is THC, um, which is the bad well, stuff. People,
0: they, yeah, they don't understand that that it's that it's not it, it's not the illegal type. It's not the one that mm-hmm. makes you, you know uh, somewhat hallucinate or whatever, I guess I would, I would call it chill, <laughs> but, um, but you know, whatever, whatever the, you know, you would call it, um, it's, it is totally different. And, and, uh, I, you know, I think a lot of, it's finally getting out there where people are starting to understand it, but, but there's still a lot of misinformation out there. They think that the only type of marijuana out there is the you know recreational kind that, you know, you smoke. It's the
1: kind that causes violence and crime.
0: Yeah, so no one ever. Oh my God.
1: (laughs) All right, so why don't we go ahead and talk
0: about the history? Yes, let's go. Let's start in
1: the history of marijuana. Um, So, way back. Yeah, we're going way back, (laughs) way, way in the back machine. So, uh, uh, cannabis is mostly associated with the practice of recreational smoking today. It actually has a much longer history of being used as uh, for medicinal and textile purposes. Um, So it's likely that marijuana was used uh, as uh, herbal medicine as far back as 500 BC in East Asia. Um, Cannabis originally revolved around Asia before it was introduced to Africa, Europe, and then eventually into the Americas a little bit later on. Um, There is some evidence that ancient societies knew about the psychotropic properties of cannabis and used it for ceremonies and rituals. Uh, One of these instances was that Archaeologists found burned cannabis seeds in the graves of shamans uh, found in China and Siberia dating back to 500 BC. Um, And I just, if like if marijuana or if, if cannabis was being used to that extent for other purposes, I just, I find it hard to believe that nobody was like, Hey, nobody try it <laughs> this stuff makes me feel pretty good you know like there's just no way that there weren't stoners in 500 bc
0: you know there was a comedian that made a joke he was like you know he was like uh you know i i love eating eggs i love drinking milk but think about the first person ever to just try an egg <laughs> <laughs> think about the first person ever that just was like hey this this stuff coming from the cow like Let's try that. Let's
1: see if that's edible. <laughs> well, and I get – I this is how I imagine it went is they had like – they had a bud from a cannabis plant and they tried eating it and they're like, oh, like that doesn't taste very good. So they threw it in the fire and then five <laughs> minutes later, they were I'm high like, out of their minds. <laughs> like that's – I think that's like the historically accurate way of how the psychotropic properties of cannabis were discovered.
0: We don't know. It might have led to like
1: the invention of the wheel. <laughs> <laughs> See, it could have. It could, it could have been the saving grace for humanity. Oh my goodness! So yeah.
0: to, to bring it back to the serious though, like one thing that I that I think that's uh, like is a serious thing about marijuana through history is if they, if even if they at this time in, in early history, early men history, they uh, they used it. You know, I don't think that they probably thought of it in the same seriousness that we do now. You know, for one, mm-hmm. they probably didn't have as stressful of lives in a lot of cases, so they didn't need the get away from you know from it to you know that aspect of it. And so, if if it made them feel good, they probably just sort of were like, "Yeah, I feel good around this. I might keep doing it," and it was as simple as that.
1: Well, I think it's it's also this idea that there weren't <sighs> like there. <sighs> I mean, okay, for example, we talked about it in, uh, I think it was in our Queer is History uh, episode, and even our uh, series on um, uh, abortion, where, you know, for a long time, abortion was just, like, a part of life. It was accepted for a long time. Homosexuality was just, yeah, like, it was just a thing. People were gay, and, like, that's how it is for the most part now, but it, it, it seems like... Way back in time, there was just kind of, it was like no one got so up in arms about this kind of stuff. It was just like, yeah, like it's just happening. And so I, like, I don't, I want to, like, it would be interesting to talk to a historian and be like, why was there this cultural shift where all of a sudden things that were not considered taboo became these taboo things? Like, why did homosexuality become this, you know, godforsaken thing? Why did marijuana become this, you know, th- and I guess we'll touch on that today, but it's just, it's interesting that there is like this shift at some point where things became taboo.
0: I mean, I'm, I'm betting it has a lot to do with religion. It has a lot to do yeah. with, you know, this idea of being pure and being, in, in you know, uh, um, kind of Judge Being judgmental and raising yourself above someone else because you're saying what they're doing is is bad for some reason you know that's kind of the the quickest way to make yourself feel better, so I have a feeling it has something to do with that. I blame white people um I, <laughs> I mean that's probably a fair assumption. <laughs> So, the majority, like. <laughs> so let's
1: bring it back. So we're going to look at okay. the modernization of uh, medicinal marijuana, and that starts with okay. Sir William Brooke O'Shaughnessy, which is a wonderful name. So uh, O'Shaughnessy, uh, he helped introduce cannabis into Western medicine between 1833 and 1841. O'Shaughnessy spent his time in India studying the medicinal properties and uses of indigenous plants. One being cannabis. Uh, He first presented his findings at the Medical and Physical Society of Calcutta in 1839. Uh, His presentation featured case studies of patients suffering from cholera, rheumatism, hydrophobia, tetanus, rabies, and a 40-day-old baby with convulsions. Uh, Wow. Though his findings were not a cure, he did discover cannabis aided in pain relief, overall calming, and mood stabilizing of patients and helped as an anti-convulsant which i i I didn't realize marijuana had anti-convulsant properties um yeah
0: yeah I, i believe people who suffer from seizures really i mean it's basically what you're saying i think that's what that is um i think they use it as a as a way to to calm that down and to not have as as bad of uh of seizures
1: maybe i need to talk to my doctor about letting me smoke marijuana um, do they
0: have in Texas, is it uh is do you have medical marijuana there? I honestly have no idea. Um I bet they don't. I bet it's I bet I, it's just like South Carolina. Like they're gonna be like the last yeah. across the finish line. I know here. I know there
1: are um I I used to produce a uh radio show about uh, uh Realty, and I remember the host talking how Basically, a ton of people are buying these huge swaths of land in Texas, basically waiting for marijuana to be legal so that they can Mm -hmm. just have these massive pot farms. Um, Same thing
0: is happening in uh, Oklahoma. I was actually just reading about today.
1: And people are getting ready for it, and they're just ready to cash in on it, basically. Uh, Yeah. So, uh, though largely forgotten by history, uh, the Irish doctor who... You know, being Sir William Brooke O'Shaughnessy, he was later queen, uh, queened. he was later knighted by Queen Victoria. <laughs> uh, he was now the queen. Uh, but he was uh, eventually knighted by Queen Victoria for his efforts uh, in expanding Western medicine. He, and he actually he went back for another time, um, I think, in like the 1860s ish somewhere, um, to continue his studies in other areas. Um, but this man, like no one really knows about him, but he was largely responsible for bringing cannabis into the Western world of medicine. Um, by the late 1800s, cannabis extracts were sold all over Europe and America as aids for stomach pain and other ailments. Um, scientists discovered the medicinal properties came from THC actually. Um, as it interacts with areas of the brain that lessen nausea and promote hunger. Um, and even today, the FDA has approved Marinol and Sindros, uh, which are two drugs with THC that treat nausea caused by cancer chemotherapy and loss of appetite in AIDS patients. So there's like sanctioned medicine by the FDA that has THC in it, the psychotropic property within marijuana. Um all like it it all stems from this one man, and this no one knows about him so it's it's really interesting um yeah,
0: and real quick side note yeah. when we were doing the episode um on um on policing in america um and we were talking about like different raids that had happened because of marijuana and all that uh it, it went, I went to a little bit, but i don't know i don't remember how much I actually got in the show, but uh it was I was reading a lot about. The classification of marijuana—it's—it's um, uh, it's like, like the worst classification of a drug. Like it's—it's it's basically just included with with all of the worst drugs you can think of. Oh yeah. But it really shouldn't be because it has these medicinal um, qualities, and most things, if it does have, uh, you know, some kind of actual health benefit, um, it's supposed to be declassified down to like um, a lower. Drug, In other words, one that you could get in trouble for if you, you know, if you uh, did it without a prescription or something, but it would be much better than than what we do today.
1: Well, the irony of that is and and we'll talk about the classification of marijuana uh, later on in the episode. But the irony of your point there is that they won't accept marijuana completely as this like uh, drug with these medicinal properties. Yeah, they'll make like oxycodone, which is literally like meth, and they'll make like all these drugs that are literally just like meth and heroin, and just give them a fancy name.
0: And they're be like, because "Great, you can't grow those yourself, right?" Yeah. I mean, that's that's a pharmaceutical game, and right? We and could I mean, get, I mean, we'll probably get into that later.
1: We could get into conspiracies. We could get into all that, but it's that's all not a conspiracy. That's capitalism. I mean, it's just it's it's guys, <laughs> the, the the big pharma. Doesn't want marijuana to be accepted (laughs) for medical uses because it would reach into their pockets and they don't want that because they want to push their drugs. They want to push their legalized meth and heroin and they want to keep marijuana away from the American people.
0: (laughs) The proof proof of it is is in their lobbying to stop marijuana from being legal. I mean, if they were all for the legalization of marijuana and they hadn't put hundreds of millions of dollars into uh anti-campaigns then i wouldn't be yeah. i wouldn't be believing that but or if they were I don't know, actually I don't think that big of a conspiracy
1: interested in the the betterment of society yeah it's <laughs> big pharma man they'll get you that's another oprah as i used to say i have we done a big pharma episode we haven't no oh, oh boy that's gonna be a good one um, yep. Which actually I'm hoping it would be actually great if Kara uh, could come back for that episode because like her – the company she works for is literally a, – a, they're a news source that is specific to like news about medicine and like pharmacies and stuff. Like that's oh, cool. th- that's their entire thing is they just – they're a news source on medicine. Um, so it would be oh. fascinating to pull from her resources and get her uh, input on that. Um, but hopefully, yeah, a later time. Cool. So, let's talk about the use okay, of marijuana recreationally <laughs> a little bit here. Yeah. The ancient Greek historian Herodotus described Scythians, a large group of Iranian nomads in Central Asia, using smoldering cannabis seeds and flowers to get high. After 800 AD, hashish, a purified form of cannabis smoked in a pipe, grew widely popular across Asia. Which this is an interesting point here. Uh, this rise of popularity actually coincided with the spread of Islam, as cannabis was an intoxicating substance that was not forbidden by the Quran. Um, which I I never would even take that into mind. Like that's uh, uh, kind of an interesting tidbit. Um, yeah. So the recreational use of marijuana uh, was introduced into the United States or wasn't introduced into the United States until the 1900s. And this is largely due to Mexican immigrants uh, introducing the practice uh, to American culture during the tumultuous years of the Mexican Revolution. And I I highlighted here... This is where
0: racism starts to get into it. Yes.
1: So I, I, I highlighted here to make the point that critical race theory is everywhere like this this is why critical race theory is a thing because the whole starting point of the decriminalization of marijuana starts with the racial bias against mexican immigrants into the united states during the mexican revolution of 1910. that's where it all comes from like it's it's the fight against marijuana the the war on drugs it's it's not rooted in the betterment of society. It's not rooted in stopping the dangers of drugs. It's always been rooted in race and it's just how it is.
0: So you really don't know what, what the Mexican revolution was. Can you, do you, do you, do you know what that was? Can you give me like a real quick, like,
1: so yeah, the, the Mexican revolution, uh, which began in 1910, uh, it was basically the, uh, Try uh, a coup, trying to transition from a dict- uh, dictatorship in Mexico and establish a constitutional republic. Uh, a number of groups, led by revolutionaries including Francisco Madero, uh, Pascual Orozco, uh, Pancho Villa, and uh, Emiliano Zapata, uh, they participated participated in the long and uh, costly fight. Um, a constitution was drafted in 1917 um, and formalized, uh, but there were still periodic times of violence that continued all the way into the 1930s, um, which actually like going into the 1930s, that coincides with kind of the biggest stretch of decriminalization of marijuana. Um, And I guess, I mean, it's just, it's all connected. We see like, and it stems from this. Um, So, Uh, Yeah, I mean, this leads us uh, to the path of decriminalization by making it illegal to begin with. Um, So with the Mexican Revolution of 1910, floods of immigrants started crossing the border from Mexico to the United States. And I want to clarify real quick because I understand how people might get this wording confused. I'm not saying that Mexicans came over and they caused this. It just it, – it was part – recreational use of cannabis was part of the culture and they brought that culture with them. At the time – And, it, and that, I
0: mean that's, that's America. Yeah. We, people bring their culture with them and it becomes American. So, you know, yeah, I think that's perfectly acceptable and yeah. so understandable.
1: I don't want people to think that I'm saying they came over and they caused this. That's just – that's not what I'm trying to say. Right. Well, um, and if
0: but, they didn't do it, somebody else would have, yeah. right? I mean it, it was popular all over the world. Um,
1: so uh, though cannabis, especially in forms like hemp and hashish, were not new to American culture, uh, the wide recreational use of marijuana was and it quickly became directly associated with Mexican immigrants. Um, and so uh, hemp and hashish hashishas uh, had been brought over um, by uh, from uh, uh, individuals from East Asia and hemp had been used since colonial times as, uh, for industrial uses on ships, for, you know, ropes, sails, whatever it is. Like, it's it it, it was used for industrial purposes. Um, stealing a
0: lot of it now, too. Yeah.
1: Um, and so, similar to what we've seen with the uh, demonization of alcohol during Prohibition, anti-marijuana com- uh, campaigns warned of the marijuana menace entering the country. Uh, that being Mexican immigrants. Uh, Crimes were directly attributed to marijuana and the Mexicans who used it, uh, creating a prejudice that carried the campaign wholeheartedly through the Prohibition era and beyond. Um, By the 1930s, with the Great Depression in full swing across the country, societal instability trifled the nation's fear of marijuana on Mexican immigrants. Uh, Public and government fear of marijuana grew to a new high, like everyone was going crazy. Um new studies were launched that linked the use of marijuana with violence, crime, and social deviant behavior carried out by people of inferior races, quote unquote, and lower class communities. And it's very you know, safe to say
0: fear, there was basically a big fear of of uh you know, there weren't enough jobs, you know, for people who were already in America and they were and the fear was that Maybe they should stop immigration because because, you know, they would take even more of the jobs or whatever. So it was a lot of it was a very like it was a change into a very selfish time, you know, because people were were starving. So I I, I get the fear there, but I think it was misguided at at the um, Mexican people.
1: Yeah, the xenophobia always. Just gets in the way of the actual problem. Um, And at this point, the problem became Mexican immigrants and marijuana. Um and so by 1931 29 states made marijuana illegal. And this brings us to Harry J Enslinger.
0: Bum bum bum. Uh, this is the
1: man that started it all. Like this is this is this man is the reason Ronald Reagan's war on drugs happened. This is the man that caused why we're still talking about this today. Like, he brought all this to
0: America. you so, don't like him already.
1: Yeah, this man did a lot. So um, uh, Harry J. Anslinger, he started working for the government in the 1920s, chasing rum runners in the Bahamas. Uh, so starting off strong, working uh, during Prohibition, trying to stop alcohol. Um, he was appointed as commissioner of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, which is now the DEA in 1930 and helped and he held his seat for 32 years. So he was he was the head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics for 32 years. Um early on Enslinger is on record saying cannabis really wasn't a big deal. Um uh, he stated that the idea that it caused crime and violence was actually absurd. Um and so it wasn't until 1933 with the end of prohibition that his stance changed a little bit. Uh, so the chase on cocaine and heroin, just it, it wasn't enough. There there weren't enough people using it. Um, they were only used by a small minority of individuals in the country. And it was already outlawed in 1914 with the Harrison Narcotics Tax Act. Um, so he needed something new. He needed something that could lighten the fire and basically keep his job alive. Uh, so as a result, he made it his goal to rid the U.S. of all narcotics, and cannabis was his newest and most vulnerable target. It was shaped as an attack on the American way, and a new drug war began that still lives to this day. So, Anslinger had basically two components of his strategy. One, violence, and two, race. So the first one that he really clung to in terms of violence was the case of an Italian boy named Victor Licata, which I believe he was a teenager. So, uh, contrary to his earlier beliefs, Anslinger used his platform in his new fight to save America uh, to conflate violence and cannabis. Uh, He clung to the story of Victor Lakata, who attacked and murdered his family with an ax. Um, Ansinger is quoted in saying, you smoke a joint and you're likely to kill your brother. And he'll, he'll use rhetoric like that throughout his entire career to conflate cannabis with whatever he wants, basically. It's just hysterics all over the place. And so he took the claim um, of Victor Licata that he smoked marijuana and it made him violent and made him murder his family. He took it to 30 doctors and there was only one doctor of the 39 that supported his idea that marijuana was this evil substance that caused violence and crime and needed to be banned. So, what'd he do? He took this one statement from this one doctor of 30 doctors, fed it to the public every single chance he possibly could, even if they weren't listening, he just blurted it out every chance he could, and the press ran this sensationalized version to the moon, and it took the country by storm.
0: This reminds me of um the you know, the whole thing about the whole like conspiracy theory about um vaccines causing different things and kids and stuff like that or like leading to, you know, different illnesses or whatever. Like like the whole that whole thing started from one medical paper that's since been debunked and like and like the person that made it like basically said Stop listening to this. I was wrong. And yet that is still the main reason that, like, so many people don't get vaccinated today. And this is before the pandemic and everything. I mean, we're just talking about basic vaccinations yeah. that were proven safe 50 years ago. Um, so, you know, it's it's funny how people can be very, like, cherry-picking in, in their... Um, and and the facts that they choose to to look at and to spread and it's it's really evil of somebody to purposely you know take one tidbit out of this whole stack of information and and run with that i just oh i don't like this guy at all <laughs> well and and
1: people and it, you know we we talk about or at least i do i talk about confirmation bias a lot you know people will take the smallest tidbit that supports something that they already believe in and they will do whatever they can to prove to themselves and prove to others that it's true. And Anslinger 100% took advantage of that. Mm-hmm. Um, he And he did it throughout his entire career. Mm-hmm. And so the case with Victor Lacata though, it was discovered years and years and years and years later um, that uh, he had a history of mental illness in his family. And there was actually no evidence that he ever used marijuana. <laughs> yeah, I know. Of course not. Of course in, not.
0: Like, in fact, as we know now, had he taken marijuana, maybe he would have been more chill. 100 percent.
1: 100 percent. And so, yeah, I. it's just exhausting. And I feel like we get that case a lot where it's like they push this thing and then it's like, oh, years later, they discovered it was 100 percent not true. Um, and we yep. see that over and over and over and over And so then aside from his uh, uh, conflation of marijuana use with violence, uh, from the beginning, Anslinger conflated drug use, race, and even music. Uh, We know there was already an overwhelming sense of animosity towards Mexican immigrants due to their introduction of recreational cannabis to American culture, um, and Anslinger used this to his advantage. It wasn't until this time where the term marijuana really took over uh, as newspapers and agency pushed the term over cannabis... To strengthen anti-Mexican sentiment in the country, which I marijuana ne- is a Spanish word. Yeah, I never thought of that. Like, I, it's marijuana, but like when I read that, I was like, it makes so much sense.
0: It, it does. I, I mean, I grew up in California, so when people called it marijuana, like I, I don't know, it just fit. Like, yeah, <laughs> it was like, okay, let's call it that. I had never really put any thought into it. It wasn't like t- I had no negative stereotypes about you know, Mexican people or Spanish people. Yeah. I'm Spanish myself, you know? So, um, you know, so yeah, so I didn't even think about it, of it as even being a different word. It was just and a it's cool like, word. It's so frustrating
1: <laughs> because it's such a good propaganda tactic too. It is. Like it's such a simple thing that had such a massive impact. And it's just, mm-hmm. it's, it's frustrating because you can't help but be like, man, that is just that is some good propaganda. Like, it's just it, – it worked. <laughs> it works way too well. Ooh, that's some good propaganda. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, cu- uh, custom agency service uh, quoted uh, – uh, I guess this is a quote from the custom agency service. Uh, Marijuana may be cultivated or grown wild in almost any locality. inasmuch um, as much as this drug is so readily obtained in the United States – is not believed to be the subject of much organized smuggling from other countries. And so uh, this is customs basically just saying Mexican immigrants really don't have anything to do with this. Like they introduced the practice of rec- like smoking weed recreationally, but in terms of where the drugs coming or coming from, it could be Wasn't coming from literally anywhere. right it's just it's inaccurate to blame mexican immigrants at any point
0: that's it that you know that's interesting i think a lot of people think of of it as like an import or something you know like it's something coming into america or whatever like it's part of america i Mm. mean it it was there (laughs) you know i mean they just they just decided to do something different with it i mean like i don't know it one of the things I always joke about with a libertarian friend of mine is, you know, like borders are meaningless. They're they're man-made ideas. Yeah. And, you know, if like it makes a lot more like if you have to separate the world, it would make a lot more sense to do it by continent. You know, at least a natural separation that makes some kind of sense if you have to do that. And if you did that, then guess what? Like like the, what's the big difference between Mexico, Canada, U.S.? You know right. I mean? Where one big thing of land, I mean you can you know put an imaginary line there but but at the end of the day, like like you know it's basically it's the same land, I mean, so if it's good for one country, I feel like in a lot of cases, you have to consider it whether or not it's good for the other countries
1: well and and regardless of statements like this from the custom agency, he kept pushing these racial claims, regardless, and he always did, so he pushed How the claim that black.
0: I was I was gonna say how did it get to black people and how and, so, and you know how did it get away from different to, to different races?
1: So that's where uh um music kinda comes into play. So he pushed the claim that black people and Latinx people uh were the primary users of marijuana and uh it made them forget their place in American society. Which is just Ooh. I, I know. Ooh <laughs> I know. Ow. And so here, uh, uh, here's a, take a shower now. I know it's a horrible sentence. It's terrible. Um, so here's a quote from him. Reefer may, okay. I'm about to say something that I have to say because it's, it's in history. It's history. It's not the N word, but it's bad. Um, so he was quoted as saying reefer makes the darkies think they're as good as white men. There are 100,000 total marijuana smokers in the U.S., and most are Negroes, Hispanics, Filipinos, and entertainers. They're the satanic
0: satanics. Yeah,
1: <laughs> their satanic music, jazz, and swing result from marijuana use. This marijuana causes white women to seek sexual relations with Negroes, entertainers, and others. It's disgusting. So he did – I don't every... even know – I don't even know how to unpack that. That's- I, it's it's just it's so much, and and there's uh, in one of these sources that I draw this from, they basically explain that jazz and and uh, swing and just black music was the complete opposite of what Anslinger believed in. It was it was free, it was rhythmic, it was you know untamed. It was this thing that was just full of expression, which was not Anslinger. He did everything he could to connect the false ideas of marijuana with parts of people of color's culture, and a big part of that was music. Um, So uh, Johan Hari, uh, uh, writer of Chasing the Scream, the first and last days of the war on drugs. uh, This is a quote from their book. Uh, jazz, so, yeah, this is the quote I'm talking about actually. Uh, jazz was the opposite of everything Harry Anslinger believed in. It is improvised, relaxed, free form. It follows its own rhythm. Worst of all, it is a mongrel music made of European, Caribbean, African echoes, all mating on American shores. To Anslinger, this was musical anarchy and evidence of a recurrence of primitive impulses that lurk in black people waiting to emerge. It sounded, his internal memo said, like the jungles in the dead of the night. Uh. Uh, Oh, God. Uh, (laughs) I know. He believed jazz was satanic music brought on by cannabis. Um, And this actually, another one, this led to the witch hunt that followed Billie Holiday to the end of her life. This Mm -hmm. is where Billie Holiday's troubles with the government came from. Um, another quote here, um, uh, those who first spread its use were musicians, they brought the habit northward with the surge of hot music, demanding players of exceptional ability, especially in improvisation along the Mexican border and in the Southern seaport cities. It had long been known that the drug has a strangely exhilarating effect upon the musical sensibilities. The musician who uses it finds that the musical beat seemingly comes to him quite slowly, thus allowing him to interpolate improvised notes with comparative ease. He does not realize that he is tapping the keys with a, fur- a furious speed impossible for one on in normal state, um, which that's a quote from Anslinger, which is kind of that's- weird because I'm like, that sounds great.
0: Yeah, I mean that's that sounds like he's um, like giving it a compliment.
1: Yeah, um, <laughs> it's it's very weird. I, I'm like, it's that it, to
0: him, but to him, that's
1: bad. Like, I don't,
0: I don't know. It almost sounds like he appreciates it. It's we like, like until the end, and then it's like it's like you know, if only they knew, like yeah. you know, like <laughs> it, it was good it was in a normal state is. or whatever. Yeah
1: like it it kind of sounds like he's a little jealous honestly i don't know yeah
0: and to be fair you could say the same thing about like alcohol uh um, yeah, you know i mean just anything that that people do out at a bar
1: i guess i it's just such a weird thing um and it's it's all because he was just a, a racist piece of garbage um yeah. <laughs> and so it was all of this um all of Anslinger's efforts And the efforts of the organization that culminated in the cataclysmic legislation that was the Marijuana Tax Act. Uh, So the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937, it was the first law that criminalized marijuana nationwide. The law imposed an excise tax on the sale, import, and distribution of cannabis products. Uh, This essentially made all but industrial uses of hemp illegal. Um... Another, I made a little note here. uh, Funny how excise taxation in itself can be used by the government to impose its will on the people. Kind of takes us back to our roots a little bit with Mr. King George. Uh, It's it's just, it's full circle. It's just, it's, it cracks me up how full circle everything is. So, the requirements of the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937 importers had to register and pay a $24 annual fee. A stamp had to be. That was a lot in
0: 1937.
1: Yes. Oh, my God. A stamp had to be affixed to every original order from the revenue collector. A customs collector held the marijuana at the port until all proper documents were received. Shipments were subject to searches, seizures, forfeitures of any provisions of the law were not met. Violation of the act resulted in a fine uh, not more than 2000 and or imprisonment for up to five years. Um, in principle, the act was created to end recreational use of marijuana, but in all practicality, it caught the hemp industry in an anti-cannabis war and made the hemp industry far less economical. It really did nothing to stop the recreational use of marijuana. It just hurt the industrial use of hemp. That's, that's really all it did. Like recreational marijuana was going to get into the American public. This act was really wasn't going to do a ton to stop it. Um, And like, keep in mind, like the hemp industry has been alive since the colonies. Like it's been a huge part of America since colonial times. And this act basically brought it to its knees, Um, which brings us to Mr. Samuel R. Caldwell, who was the first person to be prosecuted under the act Uh, in 19 or on October 2nd, 1937, Uh, One day, one singular day after it was enacted, Caldwell was arrested for selling marijuana. Uh, He was fined $1,000 and sentenced to hard labor. He was released in 1940 and died in 1941 at the age of 61. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he like sold a bag of weed to a teenager or something too. Um, He was was fined $1,000 and sentenced to hard labor for it. Like, just, oh my goodness, like so little over, much,
0: so little over much to, to that,
1: <laughs> so we've been talking a lot about the criminalization and the hatred toward marijuana, so we're gonna shift a little bit and talk about something called the LaGuardia Report, which have you heard of this before? I don't know. so uh, the LaGuardia report was brought on by. Then mayor uh LaGuardia. And here's a here's a couple quotes from him actually in the introduction of the report that I just want to read because New York. It's uh it's interesting to hear like exactly what he said. So here here are the quotes. Um As mayor of the city of New York, it is my duty to foresee and take steps to prevent the development of hazards to the health, safety, and welfare of our citizens. When rumors were recently circulating concerning the smoking of marijuana by large segments of our population, even by school children, I sought advice from the New York Academy of Medicine, as is my custom when confronted with problems of medical import. Thank God for LaGuardia. Uh, At the Academy's recommendation – I appointed a special committee to make a thorough sociological and scientific investigation and secured funds from three foundations with which to finance these studies. My own interest in marijuana goes back many years, to the time when I was a member of the House of Representatives and, in that capacity, heard of the use of marijuana by soldiers stationed in Panama. I was impressed at the time with the report of an Army Board of Inquiry which emphasized the relative harmlessness of the drug and the fact that it played very little role, if any, in problems of delinquency and crimes in the canal zone. Uh, The report of the present investigation covers every phase of the problem and is of practical value not only to our own city, but to communities throughout the country. It is a basic contribution to medicine and pharmacology, I am glad that the sociological, uh, psychological, and medical ills commonly attributed to marijuana have been found to be exaggerated insofar as the city of New York is concerned. I hasten to point out, however, that the findings are to be interpreted only as a reassuring report of progress and not as encouragement to indulgence, for I shall continue to enforce the laws prohibiting the use of marijuana Until and if complete findings may justify an amendment to existing laws, the scientific part of the research will be continued in the hope that the drug may prove to possess therapeutic value for the control of drug addiction.
0: Wow, he sounds like politicians nowadays. Like it's like uh, like we know it's not that bad, but we need more science.
1: Pretty much, yeah. He's like, I'm still gonna enforce it, you know. And this report's (laughs) not telling you to go start smoking it, but you know. (laughs) So.
0: Like how about we prove it's it's bad first and then ruin people's lives for smoking it? Pretty much.
1: So here are the findings kind of <laughs> summed up from the report. Number one, the introduction of marijuana into this area is recent as compared to other localities. Number two, the cost of marijuana is low and therefore within the purchasing power of most persons. Three, the distribution and use of marijuana is centered in Harlem. Four The majority of marijuana smokers are black and Latin Americans. Five, the consensus among marijuana smokers is that the use of the drug creates a defined feeling of adequacy, which sounds lovely. Uh, Number six, the practice of smoking marijuana does not lead to addiction in the medical sense of the word, which at the time what the uh, medical sense of the word of addiction was, I'm not entirely certain. Um, I can't imagine it's anything like it is today. Uh, Number seven, the sale and distribution of marijuana is not under the control of any single organized group. A finding that disproves uh, Anslinger's push that it's Mexicans and uh, black people who are controlling the supply of marijuana. Uh, Number eight, the use of marijuana does not lead to morphine or heroin or cocaine addiction and no effort is made to create a market for, those, for these narcotics by stimulating the practice of marijuana smoking. So there's no connection between marijuana and other drugs. Um, number nine, marijuana is not the determining factor in the commission of major crimes. Number 10, marijuana smoking is not widespread among school children. Number 11, juvenile delinquency is not associated with smoking marijuana. And number 12, the final one, uh, publicity over the catastrophic effects of marijuana smoking in New York City is unfounded. That's it. So Anslinger spoke hey, vehemently against the La- LaGuardia and the New York Academy of Medicine, calling the study unscientific. He basically just opposed it at every point of the study. Um, and so with it in classic Anslinger fashion, he challenged it. And so between 1944 and 1945, he commissioned the American Medical Association, which we discussed in our abortion series of how at one point in time, they weren't great. Um, So he commissioned the AMA to create a report that would basically counter uh, that of the LaGuardia report. Um, And so... Uh, the report, once again, similar to everything Enslinger has done, was created on racist biases and leveraged against black people. Um, it wasn't until 1972 that the AMA denounced the study, admitting that the stories and claims were false and that, like, it was just completely inaccurate.
0: Basically, um, so, yeah, our bad. <laughs> I, yeah,
1: they're like, sorry about that, guys. We kind of messed that one up. It was just completely wow. made up, basically. Um Wow. And so it was in, starting into the 1940s, really, where the attitude towards marijuana and towards hemp started to shift a little bit. Um, and it really started with industrial hemp going into World War II. So with that, uh, let's take a listen to a part of this clip from Hemp for America. And the culture of hemp in America declined. Then came cheaper imported fibers for cordage, like jute and Manila hemp, and the culture of hemp in America declined. But now, with Philippine and East Indian sources of hemp in the hands of the Japanese, and shipment of juke from India curtailed, American hemp must meet the needs of our army and navy, as well as of our industries. In 1942, patriotic farmers, at the government's request, planted 36,000 acres of seed hemp, an increase of several thousand percent. The goal for 1943 is 50,000 acres of seed hemp. In Kentucky, much of the seed hemp acreage is on river bottom land such as this, along the Kentucky River Gorge. Some of these fields are inaccessible except by boat. Thus, plans are afoot for a great expansion of the hemp industry as a part of the war program. This film is designed to tell farmers how to handle this ancient crop, now little known outside Kentucky and Wisconsin. So, Hemp for America is it's it's a classic 1940s World War II propaganda film that basically taught farmers and taught American citizens citizens about hemp. Um, so it was created by the Department of Agriculture, um, and it was it was you know we saw during World War II there was a shortage of materials. They converted basically every industry. Um, every manufacturing industry into creating products for the war and a big mm-hmm. part of that was they they started to need textile materials so they turned to hemp and so by 1943 um, because of this campaign by the Department of Agriculture 375,000 acres of hemp were harvested for the war and. Um, Part of the deal was, you know, it was subsidized. uh, uh, Farmers were given seeds and they were actually given um, – they were able to skip the draft if they committed to planting hemp for the war. Um, So very enticing to a lot of people. Um, And I actually didn't know this, but uh, one of – like previous to this, uh, one of the major states that really only knew about uh, uh, hemp farming was Wisconsin. Um, Apparently there was a lot – and even I think the last hemp farm in like 1973 or something was also in Wisconsin. Um, Oh, wow. Fun fact. Apparently
0: Wisconsin was really (laughs) good. The the hemp state? I guess so. Um, (laughs) People could be wearing giant hats of hemp uh, watching the uh, Green Bay
1: Packers. Hemp, L look at you. Sports, sportsman (laughs) of the century.
0: (laughs) that could really be a thing like like ins- like instead of just the regular cheese it could be the cheese hat but it could be green
1: hemp cheese i i guarantee you hemp <laughs> cheese is real right it has to be real hemp cheese has to it be needs a to thing it to be real like i guarantee it is so it needs to exist regardless of the industrial production of hemp and the kind of revitalization of the industry post the marijuana tax act uh It uh, remained under attack by the FBN, uh, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. So, going into the 50s, we had the Boggs Act of 1952. Uh, This amended the Narcotics Drug Import and Export Act. Um, It set mandatory sentencing for drug offenses. So, this is the first instance in which we see the mandatory minimums. Uh, A first offense conviction for marijuana possession carried a minimum sentence of two to 10 years and a fine of up to $20,000. Wow, no,
0: why? Why do mandatory minimums get get placed? Is it is it like the? Is it basically like they're they're trying to take the power out of judges' hands because they don't feel like judges are being like strict enough on it? Like they're letting too many people go or something? Like what is the mentality of mandatory minimums?
1: I think it's just. I think it's more so they just want to require the most like harsh punishments possible and they don't want to leave it up to chance. Like, I don't think it's necessarily something that they've, they saw in the courts. I just think they like in this battle, they wanted to cut any loose ends possible that could lessen the, the fight against marijuana.
0: Um, weird to me because, you know, I have a lot of respect for judges. Um, they're they're usually very intelligent people they usually mm-hmm. have incredible ethics incredible understanding of the law and if you take like it's not it's not by chance if they decide that somebody should have a lesser sentence it's it's usually a very thoughtful thing so so uh, it yeah that that bothers me it, it takes the human element out of out of sentencing and just kind of gives everyone the same at least minimum punishment you know no matter what the circumstances are i don't like that at all well
1: have you have you been uh seeing any of the clips from the hearing for uh, uh katanji brown jackson right now for the supreme court
0: i've read a little bit about it
1: yeah so I, I i've been seeing like clips from her her uh hearing and whatnot and she she actually touches on this of how you know they're they're questioning her sentencing history and whatnot and she says you know what I have to do is is hear you know hear the case, and within the parameters set by Congress, you know I have to decide what is justifiable for sensing in terms. So, I mean, yeah, like it's they just don't want to leave it up to chance, and so they're creating these boundaries so that they have control over that judgment in some yeah. aspect.
0: But the chance is the judgment of somebody who knows the law. Like, like that's, that's, I don't know. I still, that wording is just, I think you're right. It's it's just, it's not, it's not, it's not good. Why
1: (laughs) take a chance of trusting the judgment who, of someone who knows the law when you can create the law? Right. You know, like that's, I think that's the mentality, you know. So yeah. I mean and that but that's what they did. That was with this Box Act is they created these mandatory minimums that just made it so no matter what you were punished harder. And it was oftentimes like there was a a, a severe oh uh, whatever the word is, um the the punishment just did not match the crime. But they Screpancy. did not care. Um, yes. Um so In 1956, following the Boggs Act of 1952, we see the Narcotics Control Act. Um, And so this was made to basically strengthen the enforcement of existing narcotics laws. Um, Everything is just building and building on top of each other. That's what they've been doing this whole time. Um, uh, It allows for heavier penalties, including the death sentence for narcotics offenders. Uh, It includes provisions. Yeah, I know. Um, It includes provisions to facilitate the arrest and conviction of peddlers and addicts. Um, And basically, the law makes it easier to arrest people for drugs. That's what this one does. Um, The other one makes it so you can do harsher penalties or so that you have to do harsher penalties. And this one makes it easier to be arrested to begin with. Um, Wow. Which... uh, that, that kind of is what plagued the 50s, and this, you know, like I said, it was building up, building up, building up. It was harsher. It was easier. People were getting arrested. People were being attacked by the government for drug use, and this brought us to counterculture in the 1960s. Um, it this, might have created the counterculture. Yeah, I mean, it was this intense backlash to what we had seen in the 1950s of this huge crackdown. You know, we saw... After World War II, going into the 1950s, it was this this picture of the nuclear family that became the American way. It was the image of America, and and the government and Anslinger did basically everything they could to solidify that as the American image, which is why they spent so much effort attacking anything that was the exact opposite of that, Um, which, for every action, there was an equal and opposite reaction – And I think, you know, we were talking about earlier in this episode that counterculture kind of stepped over that. Um, so for those who don't know, counterculture in the 1960s was this mass exodus of young individuals from the structural norms of society. It was a force that swept the nation in revolution of clothing, music, thought, authority, sexuality, education, civics, and drugs, um, Marijuana use now became widespread in white upper middle class homes, um, and that was basically the the biggest fear of anti cannabis activists was that now it wasn't just people of color; it was Johnny down the street. Like it, it was, that they would
0: try it for themselves, and then they yeah. would know that it actually wasn't that bad. Yeah. So now,
1: now it became impossible, and I guess not impossible, but now it became much more difficult. For Anslinger and anti-cannabis activists to to conflate marijuana with race, because everybody was using it, there were no more racial lines. Um, and so, with this shift um, of marijuana use and just cultural ideologies, there was also a shift um, in political mindsets. President Kennedy found that marijuana had no links to violence and it had no links to further drug use. Uh, Policy began to focus more on treatment rather than punishment, um, uh, uh, which kind of brings us to the kind of tipping point of the fight to legalize marijuana. And it started with this interesting case that I found actually um, from a man of uh, the name of Lowell Eggemeyer. Um, and so there's not really much much known about this man other than this one instance where he walked into a police station and the Beatles were in town. People were going crazy. The Fab Four mania was, you know, all the rage. And he walked in, lit a joint, took a puff off it, and said, "I am starting a campaign to legalize marijuana smoking. I wish to be arrested." and he was arrested on site and this is what launched the fight to legalize marijuana people followed in this man's footsteps um i know later on in life um i I think he served like a year in prison and he kind of stepped away from the movement because i i think he might have gotten a little ahead of himself um but this was the tipping point this is what started it um And so, yeah, it was the 1960s that drug use officially blurred racial lines. There was no way for people to pin it directly to people of color. Um, And though it was a hard-fought battle, the legalization of marijuana fell to the white side as the protest of the Vietnam War became the priority. Um, So it kind of started out hot in the early 1960s. But people, uh, uh, progressive activists, quickly realized that the real battle that needed to be fought was the Vietnam War and the battle for the legalization of marijuana just fell under the rug. Um mm-hmm. people, you know, people were freely smoking weed, like it was it was something that was accepted, some people fought for but it was it was the battle that didn't need to be fought at the moment. Um and so going into the nineteen seventies, the movement was hit with some pretty intense whiplash. Uh um it started out okay. Congress appealed most mandatory minimums, which is fantastic. Um, It was acknowledged that these uh, did nothing to prevent the flood of marijuana use in the 1960s. Pretty much everyone recognized that the efforts from the 1950s were a huge fail, and they were kind of ultimately what caused the 1960s. Um, And they also recognized that censors were more often than not unduly harsh. Like it just – the punishment did not match the crime, and people knew that. Um, Regardless, however – this brings us to the Controlled Substance Act of 1970. Yep. Um, so this is Title II of the Comprehensive Drug Abuse Prevention and Control Act. Um, at this point, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, which um, by now in the 1970s, Anslinger has been um, retired uh, as commissioner for, I guess, like nine years by 1970 or something. I think it was in 1963 that he left. Um didn't really change what it was all about. Um, so at this point, the FBN was uh, moved from the treasury and mixed in with the department of justice headed by the staunch Nixon ally, attorney general, John Mitchell. Uh, John Mitchell would uh, later stay in trial and serve 19 months in prison for Watergate. Um, so great guy. Um, so this is the federal U S drug policy under which the manufacture, importation possession Use and distribution of certain narcotics, stimulants, depressants, hallucinogens, anabolic steroids, and other chemicals is regulated. Um, this is where we get the classification of drugs, basically. And this is where marijuana gets classified as a Schedule One drug equal to heroin, LSD, and ecstasy.
0: You know, this is a sin in and of itself. I mean, it just – there's no – conceivable way that this should have been included in these actually no. dangerous drugs.
1: No, it's 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 just so far and beyond comprehension. Like, there's just... You could die the moment you inject heroin into your body. You cannot die from smoking marijuana. Like, you, right. you there, can't.
0: There have been no deaths uh, directly related to marijuana use. Like
1: it's just it, it's so confusing because it's just this this push like it's just it does it makes no sense like i just don't understand how someone could be like heroin xd and lsd oh yeah and marijuana
0: you know and it always kind of catches me when somebody calls marijuana a drug like we've said mm-hmm. in this episode you know like like I, I don't even think of it as a drug. I think of it more as like a stimulant, you know, like, yeah. like, like it it has, it has an effect on you. So, I mean, I guess that maybe classifies it as some kind of drug, but it's not a drug in the way of like dare, you know, or like, you yeah. know, the, you know, just say no or whatever. It's like, it's nothing like those. Like you were saying earlier, it's, it's not, it's not like, you know, this process thing. It's not, um, it's not something that, you know, is going to wreck your life. Like, like, you know, at like at most you might get addicted to it as, 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 as you would, you know, a cigarette or something like that, you know, yeah. or just the, just the idea of feeling good. Um, but as far as like it, 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 it of itself, the substance itself, I, I just, I have a hard time even thinking yeah. of it as a proper drug.
1: And that's, and I, I do want to counter your point there that the consumption of, a mind altering substance can have certainly have negative impacts on people. Like it certainly can affect people's lives in negative ways. So it's not to say the consumption of marijuana is perfectly fine and healthy, but it is to say the consumption of marijuana is not the same as a consumption of heroin and meth and LSD and ecstasy. Like it's just not equal and it shouldn't be scheduled as equal. Like it's just not the no, same not at all. Thing. It's not in the Um, same neighborhood at all. I also want to point out that two of the drugs that are classified along with LSD and XTC were created by the U.S. government as part of MKUltra, a super secret thing that was later on revealed that was basically the U.S. government trying to create mind control amongst many other things. So another thing where it's the U.S. government hypocrisy where they created these things and introduced them to the public – And they're not taking any accountability for it. But they're like, marijuana, those Mexicans, like it's just (laughs) like the blatant hypocrisy is exhausting.
0: And so you're totally right.
1: I know we talked about uh, when we were planning out this episode, you wanted to learn about the whole idea of like the gateway drug. And this is where it comes from, actually. And so it was because of this that under Nixon, he coined it as the gateway drug. And it was part of. It was a part of a PR effort, basically, to justify its inclusion as a Schedule One drug, as in marijuana is on this not only because it's this dangerous drug that causes violence and crime, but it also leads to the use of other drugs like heroin
0: and LSD and ecstasy. Right. It's kind of like a backup argument. Like, it's like, even if it isn't bad, it leads to bad.
1: Exactly. That's exactly where it came from. Um, And it's just them. it's them trying to cover their their grounds like that's the whole thing. And another another great propaganda use like it's it's
0: America's great at propaganda. Modern studies um, just to skip ahead for a second um, have found some some research have suggested that marijuana use is likely to precede use of other illicit um, substances. Mm -hmm. So they so they weren't completely wrong about that um however uh correlation does not imply causation to something you probably hear a lot and it's really important to remember um that idea basically behind that is you know it like this is a good example of this uh, that that they gave um is that if uh, if you wear shoes at at to bed at night and uh, and you wake up every morning with a headache uh you could say that, uh, you know, wearing shoes causes headaches. Um, but the real reason is you were too drunk to take off your shoes. So you fell asleep drunk and that's the reason that you woke up with a headache. The Mm. shoes had nothing to do with it. Right. You know, so, so getting back to marijuana, you know, it's basically that, you know, the majority of people who, who use marijuana, they don't go to on to harder substances, but it's true that people who do harder substances often start with marijuana, but that might have more to do with the people themselves and their environment and the the different things that lead to wanting to escape their life um, rather than, you know, the idea that marijuana caused it. Um, So if, you know, marijuana is just an aspect of someone's life of why they might use drugs or why they might, um, you know, take take it to the next step and do something Worse, but it really but it isn't because of marijuana.
1: Right. Well and a big part of it too, like is the uh the the now understanding of the genetic imposition of um addiction. You know, that's Mm -hmm. another part of like you have to look at the people. Like you said, it's understanding all the variables, not just like you smoke marijuana, next thing you know, you're, you know, shooting heroin. Like it's just not how it
0: works. Or killing your brother. <laughs> or killing your brother. Oh,
1: my. It is it's a It's
0: about a, as lame as the Twinkie defense, right?
1: Oh, yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah, Twinkie defense. That was the real life uh, excuse that somebody used. They said that, that uh, somebody was too high on sugar, basically, and, and it caused them to assassinate someone. And the, it, what it actually was was in the trial of Dan White for the murder of. Uh, of cities San Francisco City Supervisor Harvey Milk and Mayor George Moscone Oh so that's the actual defense they use. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Th- oh, when at what point did we talk about that? We talked about it in the uh Queer's History episode. Was it Queer's History? Okay, that's right.
0: Yeah, because because Harvey Milk is a is a major uh, right. figure in the in the uh fight for for uh, gay rights and queer rights. Well there
1: you go folks. Don't eat Twinkies. Um <laughs> <that's> <laughs> the lesson learned So we're not
0: saying that for real. That was a joke. That was a joke. So if the Twinkie company wants to sponsor us, (laughs) please
1: please sponsor us.
0: Hostess, please Please sponsor us.
1: Give us your money. So in 1971, the first of three war on drugs was finally launched by president Nixon. In 1972, Nixon commissioned a committee to put a nail in the coffin. That was the supposed drug problem in America. Uh, This was his effort to basically prove once and for all that drugs were the devil that was plaguing the country. So with that came the Schaefer Commission. Uh, It was also, uh, that's kind of the layman's term for it. It was known as the National Commission on Marijuana and Drug Abuse. Um, And they created a report called uh, Marijuana, A Signal of Misunderstanding, Uh, This report was commissioned by Nixon to support marijuana's placement as a Schedule I drug. Um, After they finished the report, the commission found just the opposite. Uh, The commission recommended only partial prohibition of marijuana and called for lower penalties for smaller amounts of marijuana. On top of the health aspect of marijuana, the commission also looked into government's drug policy and its impact on drug use. And so here's a, a couple quotes from the report itself in the full the, like the full report that was released like a month later after it was finished, after the marijuana signal of misunderstanding, um, it was like 480 pages of them just ripping into the whole war on drugs in America. Um, so it says the commission believes that the contemporary American drug problem has emerged in part from our institutional response to drug use. We have failed to weave policy into the fabric of social institutions, unquote. Um, Quote, unless present policy is redirected, we'll perpetuate the same problems, tolerate the same social costs, and find ourselves as we do now, no further along the road to a more rational, legal, and social approach than we were in 1914, unquote. So basically, the commission just gathered after – uh studying uh the government's drug policy, they basically just said, we've got to do something different. We're doing the same thing that we've always done starting in 1914, uh, when we uh made heroin and uh whatever the other drug was, like cocaine illegal. We're part of the issue. There it was the first time really that a commission reflected on the policy of the US government and recognized a certain amount of it was their fault.
0: Still, we're going to just given it a better name. That's what I was laughing about. Like a signal of misunderstanding. Like that's the worst title ever.
1: <laughs> and I can't remember the, the final like full 480 report has a different title. Um, but I can't remember okay. what that one's called. Um, so similar though to, uh, Harry Ansling or Nixon largely disagreed and ignored the report. And in 1973, The DEA was created, the Drug Enforcement Agency.
0: So... Talked a lot about them before.
1: The DEA is a good time. So if if you didn't listen to our uh, History of Police in America episodes, here's a little snippet on the DEA. So up to this point, the war on drugs and the fight against marijuana created this tangled web of bureaucracy... So in order to bring it all under one roof, they consolidated the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs, the the Office for Drug Abuse Law Enforcement, the Office of National Narcotics Intelligence, elements of the U.S. Customs Service that worked in drug trafficking intelligence and investigations, and the Narcotics Advanced Research Management Team. (sighs) And so that was – so like I said, I – Nixon largely disagreed, but there were points in which he did agree with the report saying uh, where there was a point they made in the report that basically they resorted to these high levels of bureaucracy that just got in the way of actual policy change. And so Nixon took that as great. So we're going to consolidate everything and make one giant drug enforcement agency. And that's exactly what he did. So to start with the wow. DEA was given 1470 special agents and a budget of uh less than 75 million but in 2020 uh taxpayers spent 3.1 billion dollars on the DEA and there are more than 5000 agents.
0: And actually it, during have them the are are uh on marijuana cases yeah. like to me that would be a huge waste of time
1: 100%. We we talked about that too where it's just like there are more important things to Absolutely. care about. Um and actually in during the Trump administration he wanted to boost that budget like by more than half. He wanted to add another 3.5 billion on top of the already wow. 3.1 billion dollar budget of the DEA. Um which is just
0: I mean what's cra- what's crazy is like like you know the the real drug problem in America has to do with with prescription drugs you, know, yeah. you know i mean it's not hard you don't need the dea to 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 you know figure that out it's like you need to you know you need to talk to doctors you need to you know to figure this out with the pharmaceutical companies like like it's not this underground thing that is bubbling up or whatever it's mm-hmm. it's it's the totally legal drugs that that are screwing us all up
1: yeah it's 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 fascinating that we can put so much effort to fighting drug lords and kingpins and whatnot worldwide, but we will just blatantly ignore the drug issue going at home that is caused by big pharmaceutical companies simply because of capitalism. Like, and that's not necessarily like capitalism has its ups, it's it's got its its pros and its cons, but the fact That we will not address the drug problem in America caused by pharmaceutical companies strictly because of political money is insane. It's just
0: it's really sad. It's
1: so sad because there are people that are just addicted to literally like medically government-sanctioned heroin. And it's just being peddled by these pharmaceutical companies and peddled by these medical associations all because the money is in it and politicians support it because they get that money. It's just, it's exhausting. So between 1973 and 1977, the war on drugs really kind of loses momentum. And this is uh, a big part because of uh, a Watergate. Um, It just, things go to the wayside. It, it, the, the national landscape. Yeah. It just, went downhill um and so it was in this period of time that 11 states actually decriminalized marijuana possession um and then jimmy carter was elected president in 1977 after campaigning uh on uh, decriminalizing marijuana and it was during his ad- what was
0: that i said i didn't know that i didn't know yep. that was part of his campaign
1: yeah that marijuana. was a i guess a pretty big part of his campaign and it was during his administration um, that the Senate Judiciary Committee voted to decriminalize up to one ounce of marijuana um, which brings us and we won't talk a ton about it because we have before but also like it doesn't have like the focus of this wasn't on marijuana necessarily but it's the second war on drugs, which is Reagan's war on drugs. Um, and so in Reagan's efforts um, and if you if you want to hear more in depth on this you can listen to our uh, Uh, History of Police in America episode where we talk pretty in-depth about the war on drugs. Um, But basically, this reinforced Nixon's stances on the drug problem in America. However, the big fear was no longer marijuana. It was more so crack. Um, It refocused on harsh penalties and longer incarcerations for drug-related crimes. Um, It took a hard right turn after Congress had moved away from mandatory minimums in previous decades um, and it cultivated or it culminated into the anti-drug abuse act. Um, and in accordance to previous cases of mandatory minimums and harsh penalties of drug related crimes, a hefty amount of racial bias came with it. Um, so like we talked about it before where, um, during the, uh, Reagan's war on drugs and Curtis, I uh, I, uh, you can probably, I guess go a little more in depth on this than I can at uh, this point, but, um, it it uh introduced these incredibly harsh mandatory minimums it was a a huge uh supporter and um it conflated the uh um arrest rate of uh uh drug abusers and drug addicts with incarceration and in private prisons and it really launched the private prison industry in america um and it and was what it
0: what it did too is is it um it it finally was able to classify a certain type of 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 person a drug user as something that was negative you know like yeah. it was like they were they were bad because they used drugs and they used drugs because they were bad it was a circular reasoning that that whole swaths of people could not get away from and and it's and and it was it was they were different enough from the average middle america white family um that they could vilify them and and not see themselves as 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 getting caught up in that you know it's like marijuana was one thing uh you know marijuana was was kind of generally accepted in 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 different um you know different uh races and different economic classes but but when you got to these harder drugs and that were mostly uh happening in in uh you know inner cities and things like that um it became something that somebody else did and therefore you know you could punish them without feeling guilty Yeah.
1: yeah and we we talked about it before where it's like one of the racial implications was the difference between the the penalties for uh crack cocaine and powder cocaine where um even like a an individual who had a larger amount of crack cocaine would be uh uh they would uh, or a, a lesser amount of crack cocaine would be punished to the equal amount of an individual with a large amount of powder cocaine and a lot more
0: for them to get a, an equal yeah. sentence.
1: And that was an implication because more black people used crack cocaine whereas white people used powder cocaine. And it, was, it critical race theory, it's another instance in which race influenced laws in the country. So In 1989, President Bush went on live television in similar fashion to Ronald and Nancy Reagan and declared the third and final war on drugs. A declaration that would prove mostly fruitless as the prohibition of marijuana was at this point far out of reach and basically a pipe dream. Um, Bush's – Nice use. Yeah. Thank you. (laughs) Um, Bush's war on drugs, it just – it it really did nothing. Like nothing came of it. Maybe you can speak of it more, but like just nothing really no. happened. It was kind of empty. The, the,
0: yeah, I mean it was basically just continuing the same old uh rhetoric that that ha- was much more successful in the uh in the early eighties with Reagan, yeah. you know. I mean I think Bush was writing the coattails of that essentially. Exactly. And we're talking about elder Bush, by the way. Yeah. Um not Not W. Bush, which was later.
1: Bush senior. Yeah. It was just, it was, it was the biggest failure of his presidency and it went nowhere. Um, So this brings us to the compassionate use act of 1996. And this was, this was a huge win. And this was the turning point. California became the first state to legalize the use of marijuana for people with severe or chronic illness. Medical marijuana finally made it to American policy. Uh, this paved the way for actual policy changes that create a legal pathway to the use of marijuana and officially altered the idea that all drug use is drug
0: abuse. So, with um, that, here we are now. I mean, I, w- I wish that I wish that I wish the next sentence out of your mouth was, and then we all figured out that this was a stupid law to begin with and all marijuana became legal and we're all good now. Like that's how I want this story to end because that not. was the nineties. Like I'm alive long and I've been alive long enough to remember the nineties. I was a kid, but I remember it a little bit and I I wish that it was back then that we were dealing with this, right. but unfortunately we're dealing with it now. <laughs> um, uh, it is. Yeah. So I grew up in California. Yeah. I, I forgot that, marijuana was illegal i mean like like I like one, like one time i was at a party and and everybody was doing marijuana and somebody didn't do it like and they said oh yeah uh, you know it's like i, I don't want to do it because it's illegal and i was like you're right you're right <laughs> <Whoa. it is." laughs> like i had literally for it was so abundant it was so everywhere it was so nothing yeah, no. I totally forgot it was illegal because there. It's not the same as doing any, you know, these other drugs or whatever. You don't. You don't have those harsher con- consequences for no. it. It's no different than smoking a cigarette or you know whatever. I mean, I don't know. It it has a little bit of other effects, but I'm just saying, like in in terms of of dangerousness, it was never a part. That was never a part in our minds that that it was going to be a, a life changing kind of thing. It was it was much less than even alcohol.
1: Right. Well, and even I think it was the. Um, I think it was the Schaefer, I think it was the Schaefer Commission that basically concluded that smoking marijuana is no more harmful than drinking alcohol, realistically.
0: It has to be, it has to be less. I mean, you, you, I don't know, it's like, you definitely shouldn't drive you know, while under any kind of substance, um, you know, so I feel like that kind of stuff is probably the most dangerous aspect of it. But other than just, you know, doing something like impaired that way, um, other than that, alcohol is way more dangerous. I mean, you can, I don't know. The, so, okay, so let me get into a couple of these things that I looked up. Yeah. It'll, it'll, so first thing was, is cannabis addictive? What do you think?
1: And... In my mind, any mind-altering substance can be addictive. Um, I also think anything can be addictive. Um, So, I mean, I I would say... What would you
0: define as addictive, real quick? What's your definition?
1: (laughs) That's that's really tough. Addictive... So, I... Boy, what is the definition of addictive? Addictive is something where regardless of your actual beneficial use of it, like you have a like you have an un uh like you you have a craving for it, you have a necessity for it that really is not perpetuated by anything other than like your brain telling you that you're you require this thing um
0: right yeah i i agree with that i think it's it, it basically you have some sort of chemical reaction in your body that that wants more of it yeah i think that's probably the basis um basic uh idea of addiction so so the answer is yes cannabis is addictive um much like things that feel good that that yeah. are good dopamine things like that you know that you know, i mean everything from sugar to uh you know to cigarettes different things uh it doesn't necessarily have to be bad for you Um, some things are better than others that feel good but essentially it is addictive because we like feeling good and uh and so uh, uh those who use cannabis frequently might actually experience uncomfortable withdrawal symptoms such as mood swings a lack of energy and cognitive impairment a report uh, published in 2015 suggests that 30% of people who use cannabis may have some degree of "quote marijuana use disorder." In quote, uh, this said, it's worth noting that that uh, other socially acceptable things, such as legal drugs like nicotine and alcohol, um, are also addictive. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so I put it somewhere more in league of alcohol than of of a uh, um of heroin I think it's much closer to <laughs> to alcohol than heroin yes I, I don't If I don't think that's too controversial to say if by
1: the the most negative effect you're either going to get like green sick because you smoked too much like alcohol poisoning or which alcohol yeah. poisoning can kill you green sick can't you just like get super nauseous and sick basically um, right. and then like if the it, other negative aspect is that you're basically hung over like that's like that should not be grouped up with heroin,
0: right and I mean, and you know we tried to prohibit uh people drinking alcohol uh for similar arguments, and we decided that that was an unsustainable uh request to ask of people yeah um and so it's it's crazy to me that we we sort of let that one go within a few years but but cannabis has remained illegal all this time. Um let's see. Um let's see. We talked a little bit about overdosing and, and yes, yeah, so you can overdose on um on cannabis, however it's not an overdose like you would have on a real drug. Um and, and so it's exactly what you what you called it. Um it's uh it's called a green out or green sick. Um it can leave you it can leave you feeling uh ill. Um let's see, uh you can uh have uh confusion, anxiety, paranoia. Uh you can have hallucinations, nausea, uh vomiting, increased heart rate, and blood pressure. Um, but uh overdosing on cannabis alone can't kill you, but it's unpleasant. But it's unpleasant. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. You can tell that that probably wasn't written by somebody who who's ever uh gotten super high. <laughs> like, yes. I don't know. I feel like they wouldn't use the word unpleasant. <laughs> um so so right now we're in 2022 and uh some states have legalized it but we but we're kind of at a stalemate i feel like yeah um until we get we we get the rest of the way down this path of i think it's going to be an absolute like uh how do i put it um it's going to be a slam dunk as i think Mm -hmm. i think uh there's no way we're not going to legalize marijuana um in our lifetimes in our generation Right. hopefully i hopefully we'll we'll get it done um so so i looked up a little bit on uh how to legalize responsibly um so so the focus on what many uh, cannabis legal s- uh, states, meaning it's legal currently, um, are, are trying to do um, one of the things are, is bridge the gap between the newly formed cannabis industry and the people and communities that were most devastated by that 40-year war on drugs. So one of the sort of interesting stories that have come about in the last um, decade as, as it has become legal in some states is that there is a huge discrepancy between um, people uh, basically black and brown people and white people in, in how they're able to start to profit off of the legal cannabis business. And, and it really sucks for people who uh, of color, who have been disproportionately arrested um, throughout the decades for, for marijuana use um, that, that they can't now at least at the very least start to, you know, pull themselves out of, of the hole that we've dug for them, Um, By putting them in jail and by and by, you know, um, stigmatizing them, um, and you know, and let them pull themselves out of this hole with being entrepreneurs in this new, hugely profitable industry. This one article um, asked the question: Why are weed sales so white? (laughs) <laughs> um, and and it said, "quote In 2018, over 600,000 people in the United States were charged for possessing marijuana. 2018. That's a few years ago. Wow. Um, uh, they were not they were it was, they were not arrested for running some massive weed drug cartel. They were arrested simply for having it on them. Um, and despite making up only 31 percent of the population." Black people and Latinos accounted for nearly half of all weed arrests. Wow. At the same time, the U.S. cannabis industry was and still is exploding. And between 80 to 90% of the industry is actually run by white owners. So not only are blacks and Latinos more likely to get in trouble today for selling and having weed um, that's now becoming legal in some states, they're nearly shut out of the industry. Somewhere along the line, legal weed became a rich white business. And the reasons they're shut out um, is because basically n- nobody that has been convicted of of a felony, which includes uh, possession of, of, of marijuana, um, are eligible to get a legal cannabis license. So if you got mm-hmm. in trouble for it before, you are banned from doing it legally, which is the stupidest thing wow. because, of course— you have experience in that industry and you probably could do pretty well for yourself. Um, But we are trapping, we have trapped them in this idea of, of, you know, you are a criminal, you are, you are a felon. You cannot make yourself better. At the same time, we're telling them, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, but we're still in their boots.
1: That is such an American phenomenon that we have such an intensely disproportionate amount of people of color arrested for marijuana. But the majority of people who own and operate legal marijuana shops are white people. That is such right. that's such an American phenomenon. That's crazy. such a
0: double. It's a double standard. I mean, it's it's God. I mean, you, you can't make this shit up, right? No, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> like it's just oh. So, so I, I, I visited Boston last year, really cool city, liked it a lot. Um, a friend, a friend of mine, um, has a immune, uh, um, immune disorder, um, and uses marijuana, um, to help with that, help with nausea and things like that. Um, and, and so I actually visited a, uh, a weed shop uh, yeah. or say a, po- a pot shop or, um, uh, a bud tender, I think it's that my favorite word, bud tender, that's, bud tender is pretty great. Favorite. Yeah yeah, uh, so we visited one of those, a legal place in Boston um, and and we got ourselves some some edibles and some some good old fashioned weed. Um, and uh, and it was it was the it was the most interesting experience in that like it really was I forget actually what company it was, but it really was what I've heard described as, like the Apple store version of a marijuana shop. Oh yeah. (laughs) It was very clean clean and crisp. Yeah.
1: (laughs) That's actually
0: fantastic. Futuristic kind of feeling. I mean, it was, it was about as opposite as buying from a drug dealer in like a back alley as you could possibly get. I mean, this was more akin to like, like, you you know, you know, that mansion in, um, uh, eyes wide shut. Like it was kind of like that.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it was this was like a, if you're in there, you felt like you were a privileged person. I mean, really, right. I mean, it was it was crazy. Um, but anyway, um, so so Boston, it is legal uh, to, to, to have marijuana. Uh, but this story from uh, from 2019 Rolling Stones, I thought was interesting on this subject. It said quote, in twenty sixteen, cannabis became legal to use recreationally in Massachusetts. A year later, the cannabis control commission was formed to implement and administer laws enabling access to medical and adult use of marijuana throughout the state. The legal guidelines they came up with are straightforward. You have to be 21 and older to, to use it. You you can have up to one ounce on you and up to ten ounces in your home. And you are allowed to grow up to six plants with a maximum of 12 if, if you live with at least one other person. In 2016, the ACLU determined that although Blacks and Latinos made up 22% of the Massachusetts population, they, com- they comprise 75% of those serving sentences for mandatory minimum drug offenses. Hmm. But that's today. That's in the modern world. Um... Let's see, um, and then, as far as um this this sort of brick wall we've put up in in them getting into the legal business um a big problem that that a lot of owners have um with either them themselves being in the business or even hiring somebody to help them with their business um is that uh it's really difficult to expunge records. So the idea of expunging a record means that that if you were arrested uh, for for uh, a, a crime that um, in the past and you served your time or whatever, um, it could and then later on it was determined that whatever you did um, is now okay. The state has the option to say, you know what, like we can take it off of your record because if it's good for us now, it should have been good for you then, and we shouldn't be stopping you from getting future jobs and you know that kind of thing Um, and so so they use the example of Colorado um, and and the attempts to uh, to expunge records there Um, they legalized recreational marijuana in 2014 by 2017 they passed a law to make it possible for felons with marijuana convictions to get their records cleared uh, it turns out, though, that that it's much more difficult than it seems. Um, so this person named Wanda James said, For us, it became more of a political statement. There have been members of my family that have been arrested. My brother did 10 years because of a small amount of cannabis, four ounces. And for that, he ended up picking cotton every day for four years in Texas. Oh my this was God. shocking to me when I when I learned this. Excuse me?
1: That's insane.
0: Right. I mean, it's it's basically legal slavery. I mean, oh, I don't yeah. think it's that hard of that big of a jump to say that. No, Um,
1: definitely not. That's exactly what it is.
0: And so continuing with her quote, she says, uh, this was shocking to me when I learned this. Uh, While we've always known that it was illegal, I'd never known it was punitive. In other words, everybody that I've ever known that's been caught here in Colorado, i.e. white folks, it's been mostly, quote, give give us that, we're going to throw it away, you know. Uh, Don't let me catch you smoking pot anymore. It's always just been a warning. And as so the story goes on saying the shock of her brother's arrest and sentencing inspired her not only to open her own dispensary but to help other minorities trying to break into the business. Um out of over 2000 licensed dispensaries in Colorado's uh, Colorado, James estimated that less than 20 were owned by Blacks and Latinos, less than 20 out of 2,000. Wow. Um, And as the first African-American to own a dispensary in the state, James says one of the biggest roadblocks is is getting weed convictions cleared. Out of the 17,000 people eligible, only 71 people have cleared the records as of October 2019. The process requires... Digging into all of your records, which can be difficult to track down, not to mention any cases that don't specifically consist of marijuana charges would be ineligible. So if your charge is for drug paraphernalia possession um, and and you can't find the record that specifically says marijuana paraphernalia possession, the record itself would be unclear and you you would have a very hard time getting your record um, Hmm. erased. So, yeah, so we've continued making it difficult for people to who who are living in legal states even legal states to get to get rid of this off the record to get into le- the legalized version of marijuana and and i feel like it's just a, a repeat of what we talked about you know in history of of, of these double standards
1: uh, it's it's like i said it's full circle all the time it everything happens over And over and over again. And I like to say that, you know, we don't repeat history, but like you just said, there was someone arrested for four ounces of marijuana and they spent four years picking cotton. Like, if that's not a symbol of regression, like, I don't know what is.
0: Yeah. I mean, history constantly repeats itself. And that's one of the main purposes, I think, of this show. And that's why we focus so much on history, you know, because if you don't know your history you get caught in it accidentally and you mm-hmm. won't even realize you're just living the life of somebody 200 years ago. Yeah. You know, and you think you're a modern person. Like for <laughs> when we're th- For all we
1: know, I was just to say for all we know, you could have been that shaman in 500 BC who was just trying to get a little high.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's it's no different. Um and so one more thing um and so it, from this story um it said um, the other interesting legal aspect of this is that even though it is legal in states it's still illegal in a, at a federal level right. it has never is never gotten um decriminalized federally and and while that might be a minor difference to you especially if you don't leave your state very often um it can mean a big um a big bunch of legal hurdles for example um Dispensary owners, legal dispensary owners, can't get a bank loan um, from the federal government to open a business or keep their business alive. Um, But at the same time, because of that, these very rich, I'd say mostly white people, Mm -hmm. big hedge fund manager types... uh, have been investing in the weed industry um, for years, in um, in a lot of cases, years before it even became legal. So it kind of goes into what you were talking about yep. of buying swaths of land, right? They they have all this money, and they can they can sort of get into the ground first um, years before it even it is legalized. And then once they're in a position to corner the market in whatever state we're talking about, that's when they're gonna say you know okay thumbs up politicians now now you got to start you know talking up the legalization strategy but here we are all these years of people being arrested for it and having their lives ruined you know who who don't have that that privilege of of being connected to those mm-hmm. politicians and it's just i don't know it's just it's really sad um there are cities that are trying to fight this by um giving um a a a, a Portion of their money um, to um, to to minority-owned businesses to try to help lift them up out of out of this these legal binds and and uh, and make it a little bit more equitable mm-hmm. um, in this industry, especially since they were disproportionately affected by it to begin with um, by being arrested disproportionately. Um, but it's but it's a city by city thing, a state by state thing, and and there's there's tons of accusations of special deals going on um behind closed doors that that are giving um it's giving a lot of power to people um who are in these city governments because they they can just decide arbitrarily whether or not to um, to give um, a license to a business um and and they can even just say you know in the entire city of whatever boston you know there's going to be 20 license is given out and that's it and they just arbitrarily name that number because there's absolutely no regulation or reasoning behind yeah. it of of uh you know we have this many uh, this portion of population this portion of people uh is the demand that you know of, of who would uh, be our customers therefore we need this there's nothing uh to set that up they're just sort of naming a number that sounds good to them and and in a lot of cases the number is zero like even though it's legal in california There's a lot of uh, cities in California that actually, um, a lot of counties in California that actually have still banned any cannabis um, from their city, from their county, um, even today.
1: Do you think so? Like right now, like the definitely the the general feeling of these uh, pot dispensaries is it's you know they're quote unquote you know mom and pop shops, Um, you know small brick and mortar places that individuals started. Do you do you think if the federal government decided, hey, weed is legal federally, do you think that politicians would put the fate of it in the hands of lobbyists and big farm, or do you think it would stay kind of in the hands of the people to a certain extent?
0: Like I just not sure. There's a difference. Yeah. Um, because, because big pharma, you know, the, they, they have enough money to control the small, um, city councils or whatever that, yeah. that have this disproportionate power. Um, so, so, I mean, even though the people elect the, the officials to make these decisions, it's the officials that do decide these things. So it would have to be like, you don't just make it legal. You al- you also have to make laws that say, you know, uh, you know, there shall be no limit to dispensaries, uh, you know, um, by city councils or whatever, like you have to make those steps to prevent people from, from putting all these extra add on laws to try to, you know, limit it or whatever, to try to, you know, to, to control it. And if you're a good libertarian, you know, you believe in the, in the, and only believe in the control of like the free market. And you think that government shouldn't be a part of this, you know, so any, 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 any uh attempt to sort of name a number of of appropriate um you know a, a amount of dispensaries or whatever would be would be uh counter capitalism and i think in in at least in this subject i think that's that libertarian uh view is probably correct you you should you should listen to the what the market will bear not not what you're you know randomly going to name a number of of uh of what should exist all
1: right fair enough any other final points you want to bring up about today's um, state of marijuana
0: um you know this this one article basically just it ended um this was a uh, this was from the Cato Institute um it was talking about California and and this idea of local control that that's been set up so far um that where it basically it's local but at the same time it's there's no I, there's no um consensus behind it so so they're basically Giving too much power to um to, to people who are too easily uh controlled by by big money um and so yeah you know, so it said like rather than than embrace the intent of these propositions that um that you know make cannabis legal um nearly eighty percent of cities and counties uh in California have banned cannabis retailers um and many have set arbitrary limits um it gives an example. Currently, Sacramento, a city of 500,000 people, only allows 30 cannabis uh, retail licenses. And, and, and again, the number is not based off of anything. Um, and it, the article ends by saying state and, and local policymakers should legalize marijuana um, and vastly liberalize licensing. Because, because licensing for health and safety reasons is reasonable, as, as are zoning, normal zoning rules for locating business and commercial zones. But imposing artificial license caps is asking for trouble. One mar- marijuana industry leader got it right when he said, "Competition belongs in the market, not in the license application process."
1: <laughs> that's, such, that's such a good line.
0: Yeah, that's very good. It, those licenses are worth millions of dollars. Yeah, I mean, that, because of the power they've given them, if they if they just say, "Oh, there could only be 30." Like those are sought after licenses, and they have given value where it shouldn't be it, there shouldn't be value there
1: it's i mean it's literally supply and demand to a sense right like that's basically right. what it comes down to,
0: and um, it's artificial supply and demand you know yeah. they're they're creating the shortage
1: i mean we've seen it throughout this entire thing that it's it's control by the government, you know, like I said, oh, we God. saw it in the the 50s with the, the Boggs Act and the, no, whatever the other one was in 1956, where the government just tax on these things to where they can control the legality of it and control the market of it as much as possible. Um, and it's just what? how it goes. They just want, control.
0: yeah, there's only one is control. I mean, I, I feel like it has nothing to do with, you know, health or, you know, or morality or any of this stuff. I, I really feel like it it comes down to this idea of they want power, they want to control it. And if they can't control it, they want to make it illegal.
1: Oh my God, we've all of a sudden become anti-government libertarians to the fullest extent at the end of this
0: episode <laughs> but well i mean that's okay you know we're i think we're both moderates we always describe mm-hmm. ourselves as leftist moderate right and and caro is something similar you know and and that's what being a moderate means it means that you you take big swings back and forth um depending on the issue and yeah. that's okay sometimes libertarians are right sometimes republicans are right sometimes liberals are right you know it just it depends, like you said in the last episode. <laughs>
1: it, it depends. Depends. Thank you, Dennis Swibel, for it depends. Um, so yeah, there you go, folks. That uh, that's the history of the uh, criminalization and legalization of marijuana in the United States. Um, you know, I hope for someone. Uh, you know, if you were listening to this and you were just completely anti cannabis, anti marijuana before you listened to this episode, I hope you. I hope you have an understanding listening to the history of this battle and realizing that it's never really been about the drug. It It's never really been about the drug. It's always been about race. It's always been about American status. It's, it's, it's just never been about the drug. And I hope, I hope you get that. I hope you understand that. I hope we got that across. Um, and also weeds just, it's just not that bad. Who cares? It's fine. Like, it's all right. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, with that, I guess we're going to sign off. Um, if you all want to get a hold of us, send us an email at uh, pwbnetwork at gmail.com. Uh, we're posting on YouTube. Curtis, how do uh, people find us on the YouTubes?
0: Um, just searched social discord um, or podcast without borders network and something should come up. Um, because, uh, I think social discord podcast is the thing that makes it come up first and you'll get a bunch of our episodes.
1: Yeah. And you'll, you can, uh, go through, it'll, it even like Mark's episodes at certain, like high points of topics in the episode. So you can kind of skip through to certain points you want to hear, or maybe, you know, a, a specific topic within the episode that might be of interest to you and please comment. We've had some comments coming through. Um, and it's been, you know, fun to see those and interact with a couple people who, you know, I've listened to our show on uh, YouTube. So please uh, interact with us because we will uh, we'll contact you back and we'll, you know, touch base with you because we appreciate you listening. So and share, uh,
0: share, share yeah. those episodes too. If you know, if you agree with something um, that we said or you think was interesting that, you know, something that we uh, that we found in our research or whatever, share it because we want to get that information out there to people.
1: Yeah. Please just do not walk up to the stage and slap us in the face. Uh, but, uh, on that, I don't know what, um, our next episode, are we going into, uh, the Republican and, uh, democratic guide to liberal and conservatism next?
0: Um, that's coming up soon. I'm not, I'm not sure if it's next, but, uh, but, but it's definitely coming up soon. There's a, there's a big few episodes coming up that I've been wanting to do since this podcast started and. And it's going to be a very, very in-depth look into parties.
1: Cool. So that'll be coming up in terms of what's coming up next. uh, We're not sure. So we'll figure that out shortly. In the meantime, stay tuned and we'll talk to you all later. Thank you for listening to Social Discord, part of the Podcast Without Borders Network. You can get a hold of us by sending us an email at pwbnetwork at gmail.com. You can also check out our website at podcastwithoutborders.com. Thanks for listening.